Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thank you for joining me. want to give a big shout out to our guest on the last episode, Daniel Bruner. I hope you got a chance to listen to it. And if you didn't, please go back and listen to it. Uh, Dan Bruner is a former FBI agent. Amongst other things, he was involved in a number of investigations and prosecutions relating to the MS-13 organization. Dan had some great insights about MS-13, their connection to Mexican cartels, and I thought it was a very interesting conversation. Looking forward to having him back sometime in the near future. Before we get into today's topic, I also want to thank uh, two listeners who sent in ideas for future episodes. And I've said kind of from day one, if you have any thoughts, if there's any ideas on good episodes, things you'd like to know about, let me know. Got two great suggestions over the last week or two, one of which is going to take a little bit of time and a little bit of research, but I'm on it. Uh, and so the offer goes out to everybody. You know, if there's something you want to hear about, something that interests you, something you're confused about, let me know, and we'll dive into it. Okay, today we're going to talk about some things going on in Mexico today, but we're going to do it in a slightly different and hopefully unique and informative way. In the Mexican state of Chiapas, and if you're looking at a map in your head of Mexico, Chiapas is the most, most southern state in Mexico. Um, it borders Oaxaca to the west, Veracruz to the northwest, Tabasco to the north, and then to the south is Guatemala. It is not a heavily populated state very mountainous, um, and there have been some indigenous um, rebellions in that area over time. But if you pay attention to the news recently, and particularly in the last month or six weeks or so, there have been increasing battles between CDS, CJNG, and the military in the state of Chiapas. As I said, lots of press reports about it. You can go out and, and read about what happened um, and what's going on. But what we're going to do is we're going to step way back. We're going to step back maybe all the way to 2016. And we're going to look at a series of events. We're going to kind of connect the dots between a few events to try to understand how things progress to the point where we have these fierce battles in Chiapas right now. And that's what I love about history. Whether it's just history for history's sake, or if you're looking at past events in a political or a socioeconomic way, the key isn't necessarily what happened because sometimes that can be seen. The more important issue is why did it happen and what does it mean? 
And that's what we're going to try to look at, as I said, by piecing together a series of different events. So the first place I want to start is let's start 2014, 2015, and even previous to that and look at the leadership of the CDS. The conventional wisdom has been, and I think still remains, that for an extended period prior to 2016, the leadership of CDS was jointly held in some unknown ratio between El Chapo Guzman and El Mayo. Exactly how that played out, as I said, who had more power, who did what, is a little bit of a mystery. There are some semi-credible voices out there who have said that El Chapo never really was a leader of the cartel. He was a face of the cartel, but he didn't necessarily have operational control or, or things of that nature. And it was really more El Mayo and some of El Mayo's key lieutenants. Others will say that's not how the CDS is organized, that it doesn't necessarily have a pyramidal hierarchical structure. And so El Chapo and Mayo had their constituencies and their their power sources, and they worked together in that regard. Irrespective of how you define their relationship, they had some type of, of working relationship that had lasted over a number of years. January 8, 2016, things begin to change. That's the day that El Chapo is recaptured for probably the third time. Um, He's found in Los Mochis, and he is arrested, taken to Mexico City. And very soon after, a year, which is relatively soon, January 19, 2017, El Chapo is extradited to the United States and ends up going on trial in a Brooklyn courtroom for drug trafficking related charges. When we'll talk about this a little bit more, but when El Chapo is, is captured and especially when he's extradited control over his section or his piece of CDS, however that's defined, basically goes to his kids, the four sons that he has, two different sets of mothers, but or two, two different mothers, but El Chapo's kids, now known commonly as Los Chapitos. One can assume that there were some issues between El Mayo and Los Chapitos from the beginning, how much power he wanted to see the Los Chapitos take, um, a little bit of new guard, you know, newer ideas, different business ideas, different methodologies, you know, social media, all of that stuff. 
on the one hand with Los Tapitos, and then you had uh, El Mayo, who is you know, very quiet, doesn't bring attention to himself, hasn't for many, many years. So you can imagine that there probably were some differences from the beginning, but things started to change shortly after that. 2017, El Chapo goes on trial, and who provides most of the important testimony, or I shouldn't say most, a a lot of testimony directly against El Chapo and from an insider. So some of the most valuable testimony the prosecution offered comes from El Vincentillo, El Mayo's son. And reports suggest that any rift between El Mayo and Los Chapitos that existed at the beginning really started to widen when El Vincentillo testifies against Los Chapitos' father. The next event important is October 17, 2019. That's when Ovidio Guzman is captured in Culiacan. And after that, there is El Culiacanzano, which is the fight that happens um, between uh, Los Chapitos forces and the Mexican military. There's public unrest. There's threats to start killing civilians in Culiacan if Ovidio isn't released. Eventually, like a day later, Ovidio is released. The important thing for our discussion is that reports say that El Mayo refused to participate with Los Chapitos in their efforts to secure Ovidio's release. And that that left a lasting impression with Los Chapitos, most particularly with Ivan, who it is said no longer trusted at all El Mayo. Things really went to hell between the two of uh, these two factions in 2021 when. Los Chapitos, and keep in mind, at at that time, they also were called Los Menores, the Miners, and that's important. Um, For whatever reason, that nickname hasn't um, hasn't really stuck. Now it's Los Chapitos, but at the time, they were also Los Menores. But they murdered somebody by the name of Morgan, who was one of El Mayo's um, primary operators. The murder occurred in a town located between Baja, California, and Sonora. And on Morgan's body, there was a message that says, anyone who supports the Russian, we'll talk about him in a minute, and then it lifts off six or seven other names, will have the same thing happen to them. We are the miners. We don't kill innocents. We are with the people. Reports indicate that any goodwill there was between Los Chapitos and El Mayo was gone after Morgan's murder, and there was the clear division between the two elements of the Sinaloa cartel. Now, keep in mind, they didn't break off and form two separate cartels, right? 
you still had CDS and the idea or the thought is that as much as they might have hated each other, they also needed each other in some respects for their operations, but also to protect against the Mexican government, the military, and other cartels, most particularly CJNG. There also probably were some other issues during this time period between the two factions, one of which that get, gets talked about a fair amount was the idea that Rafael Caracantero, before he was rearrested, wanted to assume a leadership role within the CDS. El Mile was in favor of that. Los Chapitos were not, and that that apparently caused even more friction. Okay, the next event we want to talk about is the capture of a video Guzman for good this time in January 2023. And we've talked about this before, but I want to walk through this a little bit with you because I think it's important. So if you remember, January 5, 2023, just a little more than a year ago, Guzman Lopez Ovidio um, lived in the Jesus Maria district of Culiacan. Apparently, the night before, they'd had a party at the house. The military executes a pre-dawn raid on Ovidio's residence using um, helicopter gunships, ground vehicles, etc. They um, are able to apprehend Ovidio. And if you remember the story that I think has been pretty well confirmed now, Ovidio had you know, spotters around the neighborhood and he was actually alerted at the very beginning when the military started this pre-dawn raid. Reports are that Ovidio actually was escaping. He was in a car. He was getting away when his wife called him and said that one of their daughters was having a nervous breakdown because of the helicopter gunships and stuff outside. Apparently, Ovidio turned around, went back to his house and negotiated his surrender on the condition that his wife and daughters were allowed to remain in the house. Uh, Ovidio was captured, flown to Mexico City, and eventually taken to Altiplano, the Mexican security um, prison just outside of Mexico City. It said that 17... Other cartel members were taken into custody on that initial operation. After news got out that a video had been captured and kind of you know, simultaneously with these military operations to, uh, to capture him, all hell breaks loose in Culiacan. Um, uh, and not just in Culiacan, Los Mochis, Guasave, other um, cities in the region. The um, the U.S. consulate issued a highest level of tri- travel advisory cautioning against travel to Sinaloa. The Sinaloa government and governor called for the public to shelter in place. Remember some of the events at the Culiacan airport that um, that stick out in our in our minds to really show just how how crazy it was 
So two planes at the Culiacan International Airport took gunfire. One was a passenger jet operated by Aeromexico. Another was a military aircraft, but they both took gunfire. And there are stories of people who are on the Aeromexico you know, flight. It's sitting on, on the tarmac and it's getting, you know, bullets are coming in. Um, as crazy as that sounds. Uh, apparently, there were shootouts on the runway at the airport. Aeromexico diverted planes away from the international airports in Los Mochis and in Mazatlan. There were highway attacks. Um, services eventually restored. But in addition to issues at the airport, there was looting in parts of Culiacan. Banks and businesses had temporary closures across the state. There were carjackings, etc. They, um, the reports say that in total, ten soldiers, nineteen gang members, and one police officer were killed during the unrest. Among the victims was an infantry colonel and four escorts, who were ambushed and killed by cartel members. A report from the Secretary of National Defense, Sedena put the forces used in the operation at over 3,500 soldiers. The Secretariat said in the course of the operation, four 50 caliber Barrett rifles, six 50 caliber machine guns, 26 long arms, two handguns, magazines, cartridges, tactical equipment, and 13 operational vehicles were seized. Following these events in January... On September 15, 2023, remember that's, you know, barely eight months after his arrest, Ovidio was extradited to the United States where he will face charges. If you remember, we've talked about this a couple of times in April of 2023, uh, three different indictments were unsealed uh, with charges against Los Chapitos and some of their affiliates, including El Nini. Uh, and Ovidio is named in those indictments. So he's going to face charges in federal court in Chicago first, and then likely um, will face charges in the others. Okay, so where are we at now? We've got a situation where there's now a, a giant rift between Los Chapitos and El Mayo's faction. We'll talk about... Uh, some elements of that in, in, in just a second. And now Ovidio Guzman has been um, arrested. What happens between these two groups? We didn't really know a lot about this until just a little bit ago. But there was a report generated by Sedena in December of 2023 and the Mexican outlet um, Millennial was given access to it. And this report is fascinating. And it talks about some significant changes that took place in the leadership of CDS after the arrest of Ovidio on January 5th. So according to the report from Sedena, Ivan and Alfredito two of the remaining Los Chapitos, established a communication with El Mayo. 
Now, the report doesn't specify whether that was a direct communication or through intermediaries, but Yvonne and Alfredito ask for a ceasefire between the two sides in order to focus on their common enemies. Those being the Mexican army and the National Guard, which the report says, working with the DEA, were seeking to, and I quote, extend a winning streak of arrests requested by the White House. The report notes that the Mexican government in previous months had been effective in capturing extraditables, people who you know, we're kind of these mid-level people that you could extradite. It was good publicity for the Mexican government, for the military. It was also a way to show the United States that they were serious in their efforts to control the, the cartels and things. So uh, there was uh, L-90 was arrested. There was also um, a Gerardo Ortiz who was a key member of Los Tupitos LG1. He was arrested, and there were a few others. The report says that um, if they were, remained divided, this is Los Tupitos talking to El Mayo, if they remained divided, quote, they were all at immediate risk of stepping foot in the United States. The report says that there probably were three conditions that El Mayo had to accepting this truce offer. First was that Los Chapitos would resign from the fentanyl business in order to lower pressure from the, the United States. Remember, fentanyl is you know, the public enemy number one. It is the face of the trafficking crisis. It's the face of the Mexican cartels in the United States, in the U.S. media, with the politicians and and political groups. So Los Chapitos is told, if you want this truce, you got to lower the pressure. The best way to lower the pressure from the United States is to stop trafficking in fentanyl. So that's number one. Number two, they agreed to an alliance against CJNG in states such as Durango and Zacatecas and later on Chiapas. And then there is a promise that they would cooperate with each other in case of a military operation against them. And one step further, it would essentially be all hands on deck if a military operation was directed at either El Mayo or any one of Los Chapitos, that they would use all necessary resources to protect those four, the three Los Chapitos and El Mayo. In exchange, according to El Mayo, You'd get help in negotiating with uh, the military, trying to take some pressure off, having kind of a public relations with um, the United States, and they would 
then have a greater security together. We're going to talk about El Nini in a second and, and his arrest. But remember, El Nini was the head of security for Los Chapitos. He ends up being arrested, and it's pretty much assumed that he was handed over by the cartel to the Mexican government. He is replaced by Oscar Medina Gonzalez, El Panu, who has direct links to uh, El Mayo. But backing up for just a second. Remember shortly after Ovidio was captured, Los Chapitos put out some information that was widely reported saying, we're not in the fentanyl business. We're not going to get in the fentanyl business. And everybody under us is going to stop doing fentanyl, you know, having anything to do with fentanyl or we're going to you know, take take action. Um, there were banners on bridges. And if you saw my newsletter, you know, we talked about this several times. You know, but there were banners hung on bridges saying that the fentanyl business was prohibited. Then there were reports of killing of dealers um, who were continuing to make or sell fentanyl, even though it was prohibited. Um, there also were numerous reports of anonymous calls that went to, uh, the military and the national guard about locations of drug labs that didn't have any people. Most of these raids didn't end up with any people, but were full of precursor chemicals, tabletting machines, and the like. There also started to be around this time mid-level operators. And there's a couple um, that I can name. Um, El Acelerado, sorry, El Comandante Arielo, um, that were given up in essence. And it was this idea of if we can feed the Mexican government, feed the um, DEA enough kind of middleweights, then, you know, or, or enough small fish that makes up for them not getting a big fish. They'll still be full, so to speak. There also were a, a number of kind of communications going on between the two factions, according to this report, where Los Chapitos and El Mayo's group were using Mexican government communiques as messages to the United States that they were getting out of the fentanyl business. So there's this pattern of conduct that you couldn't necessarily see as it was occurring. But the idea that, remember when, when these reports, those Chapita saying we're out of the fentanyl business, everybody was like, oh, bull. That's, that's, no, you're not. You're lying. You're making it up. You're trying to look at, and it may, in fact, in fact, be the case. Now, whether that slows down the fentanyl trade at all is an entirely different question. But here are a series of events that 
this report from Sedena says all are reflective of the idea that Los Chapitos were accommodating the demands and requests from El Mayo in order to have this truce. The report also says um, the agreement between Los Chapitos and El Mayo really dealt significant blows to some splinter groups. Um, there's the Cabrera Sarabia clan, Los Guanos, uh, Chapo Isidro had a group. A number of them um, are all of a sudden hurt because they were in the fentanyl business. But now if they want to continue trafficking fentanyl into the United States, they have to do it alone. And they run the risk that the government and the DEA's focus will turn to them as opposed to Los Chapitos. The report essentially concludes by saying El Mayo came out of this ahead, that he was victorious uh, because he hurt his rivals economically, strengthened his defenses in the states uh, where there were disputes, and he gained influence in the decision-making of Los Chapitos. Okay. So you have this. Then we go to Thanksgiving this year. And that's when El Nini is captured. And I want to draw a distinction. Think about the arrest of a video. It's a midnight or pre-dawn raid. You have gunship helicopters. You have military vehicles. You have lots of military personnel. El Nini, who again at this time was the head of security for Los Chapitos, he was captured around noon. Some people say noon. Some say about 1.30, whatever the case may be. But he was on the roof of a two-story house in a middle-class neighborhood of Culiacan. There was no gunfight. There was, you know, you can watch the video on YouTube of him being captured. The street looks bare. It's not like there's military everywhere. there is a man on the rooftop. You can see El Nini in his underwear on the roof. The uh, man yells out at him, turn yourself over, Nini. Fires two gunshots, basically um, warning shots. And that's it. He's captured. It um, It's interesting to juxtapose that. If... If if this was a pure government activity, that is, they didn't have any insider information um, about the circumstances, would it have been this uh, discreet of an operation? Sources in Sedena say that the operation to um, capture El Nini almost took place at the same time that they got Ovidio. So during the process of this unrest following Ovidio's arrest, 
there was intelligence reports about where El Nini was. Apparently, he was chased to his in-laws' house in Culiacan, but managed to escape. Somehow, he got a motorcycle of one of his looks out, lookouts and wearing uh, a helmet, fled the scene while the military arrested his lookout, thinking they had El Nini. But um, that was kind of the beginning of the end for El Nini. There are a number of reports that over time El Nini was um, bringing too much heat to the organization. There were events of, of violence. There were battles between Los Ninis, El Nini's group, and Los Russos, who are aligned with, I remember there was the Russian that we talked about earlier, um, that are aligned with um, El Mayo's group. In any event, um, at some point, there were there was friction between Yvonne in particular and um, El Nini. A reporter, um, and I don't have the name at the moment in front of me, I apologize, but a reporter said that he talked to a member of Los Chapitos' extended family who said, you know what, they didn't necessarily want to give up El Nini, um, but El Nini also didn't really want to be with them anymore. The concept was that El Nini just wanted to be left alone. He then went on to say that there was a small reunion about three weeks before El Nini was captured. They all got drunk and there was a heated discussion between El Pie, who is the the successor, and El Nini and they couldn't reach an agreement. And Yvonne was there and said he told both of them that they needed to fix their problems or they would end up like the Felix Ariano organization. But El Nini uh, went back to one of his ranches, and that's when the government again almost captured him. Remember we talked, or at least it was in the newsletter, there was the seizure of, of a number of his pets, his tigers and his cars at a ranch. And that kind of... Um, was the beginning of the end for El Nini. Uh, apparently, El Nini got mad um, and was angry at Yvonne because he didn't um, let him do what he wanted to do. And so he went um, back to Culiacan, and that's where he arrest- was arrested. This, um, this source says that... Yvonne tried to warn El Nini that things were too hot in Culiacan and that the government was after him. But El Nini said he didn't need protection, that he was safe there. So they, uh, the source also said that um, El Nini was warned about the presence of some elite forces and that they knew they were there to grab um, El Nini which and this was sent the day of his his arrest and just about an hour before it actually happened. 
Um, so there are two versions of the story, and it's possible that both of them are true. Um, Los Chapitos, particularly Yvonne, decided to remove their support for El Nini. And in that way, he felt he was betrayed and wanted to go on his own. Whatever the story is, you then had a a situation where um, the the relationship between El Nini and Los Chapitos was destabilized, which put him in a vulnerable position and allowed him to be captured. But the reason we go through that is if you think about it, this is an extension of that agreement between Los Chapitos and El Mayo. And a, a deliberate change in strategy by Los Chapitos to try to ratchet down the, the notoriety, the attention of the government the DEA, the Mexican military, and El, El Nini was not cooperating in those efforts. So then that leads us to the battle for Chiapas. And today we see numerous reports of Chiapas being threatened, it, it, you know, villages, municipalities in Chiapas being threatened by CJNG, by CDS, and uh, the, a number of reporters say also suffering from the aggressions of the army. There um, are all kinds of reports of displacement of thousands of people. Uh, leaving municipalities and trying to go to um, the different areas of the state, people trying to avoid uh, some of the the border areas with Guatemala. We've mentioned this a couple of times in the newsletter, but um, Chiapas has recently had a an outbreak of. Um, either chopped up or dismembered heads showing up in coolers. So there was a cooler left in Chiapas that had a number of chopped up heads in it. And there was a narcomanta on it that said, here is you, your shit, you ball of pigs. Same thing will happen to all you polleros, um, you know, like chicken farmers, generating revenue for the scumbags of CJNG, and the gays from Cartel de Chiapas go outside and fight. Stop hiding under the government's skirts, pure CDS. You also then see um, some videos of citizens in Chiapas refusing to let uh, the military or National Guard pass. And the military verbally attacking the citizens for protecting CDS. You also have the Cartel de Chiapas, which is a a smaller group arguing um, on social media that the military is uh, clearly favoring CDS and trying to uh, take out the Cartel de Chiapas and to um, harm CJNG. 
And that goes back to, again, the strategy of El Mayo and Los Chapitos. We've talked about this before, but the idea of if we're not the worst cartel out there, we can point the finger at the batter cartel and we can convince the government that it's in their interest to, you know, have some degree of cooperation with us for the benefit of the government getting to these other cartels. There have been ideas that this has happened for years, well back to when El Chapo was in power, and that these are you're reflected in, in operations against the Zetas, against BLO, against AFO. So this strategy has been in place for a long time, and now you have this finger pointing in Chiapas. You know, the CJNG and cartel de Chiapas blaming CDS and saying, you know, that they're the ones that, that are cooperating with the government. You've got CDS saying, CJNG, you're the bad people. And then you've got the military kind of in the middle, not getting any support from the residents of Chiapas who are being displaced by all of this fighting. So it's a a vicious situation in a very key strategic location. And we'll just have to see how things um, progress. So I hope that made sense. You know, of trying to say, all right, we've got this, this mess in Chiapas. We know CJNG, CDS are fighting. But what's the basis for it? How did it come about? And by tracing these events, you know, the the fracture between Los Chapitos and El Mayo, the capture of a video, the peace treaty between Los Chapitos and El Mayo, the capturing of El Nini, that we see kind of how these um, issues formulate. And remember, when we went, when we talked about the uh, the requirements from El Mayo for the peace treaty, um, was one of them was all right. We got to fight CJNG in Guerrero and Zacatecas, and obviously that then also included or morphed into going after CJNG and the strongholds of CJNG in Chiapas. Okay, that is our discussion for today. Again, I really hope you got something out of that. I think this is all fascinating, um, and and I love trying to understand how things progress over time. We will be back next week uh, with something new. I'm not exactly sure what yet, but it'll be new. Don't forget about the newsletter. Um, again, free Comes out every Sunday morning, just tells you all the crazy things happening in the world of drugs and cartels over the prior week. And with that, I will say thank you very much and that this has been Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarina for this week. Take care, everyone.